Thank you, Stamps. Well, nice to be back after being away for the last couple of weeks. Uh, last Sunday morning, I was with One Life Church in Houston, Texas. America is definitely a different country from the UK, and Texas is a whole other country again. Uh, this is my friend Brian Barr, who leads One Life. Some of you might remember him being with us with his wife Rachel a few years ago, and that's the, they've just built a new building. That's the lobby of their new building, which I think is bigger than the entirety of what our new building will be. But <laughs> it is Texas. It is very different. There's all kinds of things, different, much bigger buildings, half the congregation carrying guns. It's all very weird. Uh, but um, God is working amongst them, and it was uh, amazing to be out with them and see what, what the Lord is doing there. Okay, we are today picking up or finishing off for this side of Christmas our series called A House for My Name. And our theme today is about being servants of the Lord's house. And today really is a significant Sunday, our last um, service in this building as it currently is. Just before we began, I went up to see the kids team in the top pool and said, you have full permission to do whatever you like in this building this morning. <laughs> so I think they're going to draw on the walls and do all the kinds of things they're not normally allowed to do. But I said, feel free, rip up the floor, pull off the radiators, do what you like. <laughs> S- smash the windows, no longer matters, just fill your boots. So uh, the kids will be having fun. I'm sure they've all got suitable health and safety gear, it'll be fine. Uh, there, there, there will be some inevitable moving strains as we work through the next few weeks. Uh, being in three services at 502 is going to be a challenge, and for some of you, being in a different building, working out parking, and all that kind of stuff is going to be complicated, and we'll be communicating more about that before we start on the, on the 9th of January, um, and yeah, working out how we fit people in, all that kind of stuff. So there's bound to be some moving strains, so we'll have to exercise grace and patience, and that's also, of course, complicated by current state of play with COVID, and who knows what might or might not be happening after January, and in January, and what we're allowed to do or not do. So we're just going to have to trust the Lord, be patient, and... Um, experience his grace together. And of course, before we get to all that, we've got Christmas to navigate as well. It's the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) And through all this, we do need to remember what it is that we're about, what we're about as the people of God. And I'm hoping that this morning's message will help us to see that again, remind ourselves of what we're meant to be about. So the part of the story that we've been looking at, we're doing, if you're new here, we're doing a, this series is, is working through the whole of the Old Testament. And uh, the part of the story we've been in the last few weeks is the story of the Exodus, the story of God's rescue of his people, taking them out of Egypt, bringing them into freedom. It's a story of what it means to be rescued by the Lord Yahweh and then to live as rescued people. And The worship of God is central to that story. The Lord Yahweh rescued his people to live in his house and to enjoy him. The the metaphor, the image we're seeing throughout this series is that the Lord is building a house, a place for his name, a place for he and his people to dwell together. And the Exodus is about God bringing his people out of slavery to come and dwell with him in his house. And we might think this time of year, the kind of imagery of the best imaginable Christmas. Imagine that you had that great big country home with roaring fires in every room and everything you might want to eat and the most comfortable sofas you've ever sat on and all your friends and the people you love and not the difficult family members but the family members you actually like, all there 
and it's just a great time. And that's kind of something of the picture of what we have of what's going on in the, in the part of the story we're looking at today. God's people in his house, enjoying his presence, delighting in him, worshipping him, enjoying one another. And that picture was modeled, enacted, while the people of Israel were out of Egypt, but wandering in the wilderness for 40 years in, in the tabernacle, in this tent which the uh, Lord commanded, instructed Moses to build, a place of worship. And central to what was happening in the tabernacle was what the priests did. This is how Peter, Peter Lightheart, whose book we're basing this series on, puts it. Yahweh is a great king, and the tabernacle is his palace. Like every great king, the Lord has palace servants. The Lord's palace servants are called priests. So these priests who work in the tabernacle as servants of the Lord. Now, what we need to do today, what I'm hoping we'll do this morning, is to learn something about who the priests were and what they did, and then see how that applies to us. Because for 2,000 years, we haven't had priests in the way that is described here. Uh, some people are still called priests in some churches. Uh, uh, those who, who lead would be called priests. We have to navigate that because... Actually, that role, the role that uh, those of us who lead in church have, should be very different, actually, from what is described in the Old Testament. And also, we have all kinds of word association problems, because probably in our context, if you hear the word priest, you pretty immediately think abuse, because that's kind of the sad narrative of so much of what has gone on in recent years. So we need to see what the priests described in the Old Testament were about, what they did, and then see why this is good news for us. If it's not good news for us... Might as well go home and get on with your Christmas preparations. So here we go. Story, the story of the appointment of the first priest is told twice in the Old Testament. It's told in Leviticus chapters 8 to 9 and in Exodus chapters 28 to 29. And we're going to be looking at the Exodus description. This is what it says, Exodus chapter 28. Let Aaron your brother be brought to you from among the Israelites with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, which is a kind of waistcoat, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, all the Christmas colors, and fine linen. And then the rest of the chapter gives a detailed description of the making of those garments and what they were like and how they were to look. Then beginning of chapter 29, this is what you are to do to consecrate them, so that they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect, and from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket and present them in it, along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. 
The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And then the rest of Exodus 29 gives a more detailed description of what that then looks like. Now, what can we learn from these details? First thing we learn is that the priests had a uniform. And uh, think about the purpose of uniforms. Uniforms serve to give you a sense of identity. That's who you are. Uniforms give a sense of status, of what you are worth, and uniforms can also convey a sense of authority, what you can do. So in picture of naval top brass, the more gold you have hanging off you, the more status you have, and the more authority you have, the more that you can command. The uniform signifies something which represents identity and status and authority. And for the priests, their uniforms were like that. It identified them as belonging to God. It showed what their status was. They were in this privileged position of being those who administer before God in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. And it also showed their authority, that they were authorized to minister before God. And the uniforms that the priests wore were beautiful. When we think about uniforms, we might not immediately think about naval top brass. We might think more, if you've got kids, about what you can get, the cheapest uniform you can get from Tesco, the cheapest one. Or you, if you're going to a school where somebody's got to wear a blazer, and we went through this with our kids, you buy the cheapest one and the biggest one you can find. And the first few years, they're walking around like this with their hands lost up their sleeves, and eventually they grow into it, and it falls apart after however many years they're at school, and, or maybe gets passed down to the unlucky next child. Uh, and uniforms are not things of particular beauty and splendor. They're just uh, things you have to buy and, and deal with. That's not what's happening here. The Lord says that these uniforms the priests are to wear to be made out of the finest cloth, the most expensive yarns, and they're to be skillfully made. And what we see in this, or I think part of what we see in this, is that beauty matters to God. Beauty matters to the Lord. The Lord God made everything beautiful when the Lord created the world. He made it beautiful. There's a sense in which God himself is beautiful. We need to see something of the beauty of the Lord. And his palace servants, his priests, need to reflect something of that beauty. And so Aaron and his sons are clothed in uniforms which are beautiful, the finest cloth, gold, blue, all the expensive colorings which have been so difficult to get hold of in those days, beautiful things. Now, what should we do with that? What's the application for us in our context? The Exodus is about people being set free. God takes his people from slavery in Egypt to lead them into freedom in the promised land, a land which he says is going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. He's building for them a beautiful house where they're to live and dwell with him. Now, for us, when we come to Christ Jesus, in Christ, we receive these things too. We receive freedom in Christ. We're promised a land flowing with milk and honey. We're promised a beautiful house. We're promised that we will dwell with the Lord for ever. And so I think for us still as a sense in which wanting to beautify things is part of our priestly function. There is a kind of a priestly role in wanting to bring beauty to the world. Uh, it's Christmas. We decorate our houses. My daughter Felicity made this wreath for our front door, which I think is beautiful and uh, makes our front door look much more beautiful than it normally does. 
I also thought more in a more mercenary frame of mind that she should probably make lots of them and flog them and make some money. But anyway, it's beautiful. Uh, and, and it's good at Christmas to try and add some beauty to our homes through our decorations. So all kinds of ways in which beauty can be expressed through art and through decorating your house and through gardening and all kinds of ways in which beauty can be expressed. And we know that ugliness is actually demeaning, that ugliness sucks uh, our souls. And to live in ugliness is a demeaning state of affairs. And we know how poverty and ugliness often hang, well, always hang together. And, and, and part of our priestly role as followers of Jesus Christ actually should be to bring some beauty into the world. So we're lifting people out of ugliness, lifting people out of poverty, lifting people into an experience of the beauty of God, who is himself beauty. Now, of course, there's a, then a corresponding danger to that, which we have seen through the ages, that the pursuit of beauty can itself become something which is misguided. We see grandiose churches or people pursuing what actually is just an unhealthy luxury or panelling their own houses in the biblical expression, something which can become actually not really a pursuit of beauty as much as just greed and idolatry. How do we work this out in church life? The reality is that in our kind of church tradition, the uh, kind of tradition that we belong to this as Gateway Church, our, our approach to things like our buildings is that our church buildings should be somewhere on the spectrum between plain and shabby. That, that, that's, that's kind of our, uh, our doctrine of, of uh, church buildings. We'd... <laughs> We, 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 don't, we, have, we, haven't, we haven't got the stained glass windows and the, and the, and the golden altarpieces and all that kind of stuff. That's not, not our tradition of, 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 of church life. And when we build our new building up in the car park, it's, it's going to be functional, uh, but it doesn't have to be shabby. And where we can, let's add beauty to the world. One of the things that actually blessed me this year was we've got new neighbors living across the road just here, and uh, they've they worked hard in their front garden and did some beautiful flowers in the front garden. And to be honest, Alder Road is not the most attractive road in Paul, and this building has not done a great deal to add to that <laughs> over the years. I'm glad it's going to change. And it was just really, it was nice to be in the office looking out that window and seeing actually somebody's, put, somebody's added a bit of beauty to what is not a very attractive road. And where we can, let's add some beauty. But it's, a, it's, a priestly, it's a priestly thing to do. It's a priestly function. Now, the priest's clothes were not only a representation of beauty, there is also a symbolic significance to each of the items that Aaron and his sons had to wear. They, the uniform showed that these priests were ready to serve in God's house, that they were dressed for action. And again, that's part of the function of a uniform, that you put the uniform in and it shows you're ready. If you're a firefighter or a police officer or you're in the military, you put on the uniform, it shows you're ready for action, you're ready to serve. And so Aaron wore a breastpiece that covered his heart, that showed that his heart was to be covered, protected, kept for the Lord. He Inside the breastpiece were these things called the Urim and Thummim, which are a little bit mysterious, but they were some objects by which the high priest was able to discern the will of God, and so it used to ask God questions. And so there's something about what Aaron is wearing which shows about how the Lord is directing his people. Aaron's robe, the hem of it, had bells attached, uh, not because it was Christmas, but because uh, if you go into a king's presence, you don't go into a king's presence unannounced. 
And so when Aaron went into the inner place in the tent, the bells would sound, and it was a, a sign he was coming into the presence of the king, coming into the presence of God. And there was a gold plate on his turban with an inscription which says, Holy to the Lord. And that was a sign that what Aaron offered to God on behalf of the people was acceptable, that the offerings Aaron and his sons brought really would cover over the sins of the people, that God would accept their sacrifices and would accept then that they were holy to the Lord. And so all that the stuff that Aaron and his sons wore, all the clothes they wore, the uniform they wore, demonstrated the dignity and the significance of their role. The, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was meant to be a, a model of the house that God is building, and the priests were meant to be kind of model inhabitants of that house. This is how Peter Lightheart puts it. Service to Yahweh in the sanctuary is service for and among Israel, and the priest's work among the people is ministry in Yahweh's house. Priests guard and protect Israel by teaching the law, as well as by serving as guards at the sanctuary gates. Priests cleanse Israel as much by leading sinners to repentance as by sprinkling blood. They perform Yahweh's table service as much by conducting worship as by turning flesh and grain to smoke. Even when the priests move out of the holy place to stand and serve among the people, they are serving Yahweh by housekeeping. These are Exodus people. These are God's house people. These are servants of the Lord people. And in this house... There is beauty and dignity and authority and forgiveness. That's what the priests, servants of the Lord, are to represent. Now, thinking again about how this applies to us, the, the priests were always a limited subset of the nation of Israel. They had to come from the tribe of Levi, 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, just one tribe, the tribe of, Israel, of Levi, entitled to serve as priests. And even within that tribe, it was only Aaron and his sons who would serve as high priests and would go right into the center of the tent, into the most holy place. But those priests were always representative of something bigger that God was doing. A few uh, pages back, when God speaks to Moses in, uh, in Sinai, he says to Moses, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. What the Lord says there, just a short while before Aaron and his sons are appointed as priests, God points to something which is going to be bigger. Actually, the whole nation are going to be priests and serve before me. Aaron and his sons in the tabernacle are going to represent what the house of God is meant to look like. But the plan is that all of God's people fill God's house and serve as priests before him. The day is coming when it won't just be the Levites, but all people who will be priests. What's happening in the tabernacle will happen throughout the earth. There's going to be beauty and worship and forgiveness and authority throughout the earth, ugliness is going to be gone, and idolatry is going to be gone, and sin is going to be gone, and oppression is going to be gone. That's what the human race was created for. That's the kind of world we were made for, a world which is beautiful, and a world where we live in life-giving worship to the Lord, and a world where all our sin and shame is forgiven and done with and swept away, and where we exist with godly authority to exercise. That's what you and I are made for. That's what this earth is made for, for us to fill the earth like that. And that was modeled 
in this tent, in this tabernacle in the wilderness. And now it is meant to be displayed through us, through the church of Jesus Christ. And this is the good news part of this message, that if you are a member of the church, if you know Jesus Christ, you're part of his body, then you are called as a priest. And that has happened for us because of the work of the great high priest, Jesus, who has opened the way for us to come into the presence of God. This is how the Apostle Peter puts it in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And do you see there how the Apostle Peter takes what God had promised to Moses and takes exactly that phrasing and applies it now to us, to the church, to those who have come, to the living stone, come to Jesus Christ, come to our great high priest, and through him have entered into a new and living way that we are declared to be chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. This is an extraordinary summary of what Christians are. This is what we are, brothers and sisters. Peter makes it clear, this once wasn't true of us, but now it is. Once we weren't in, but now we are. And all the promises that God made through Moses to the people of Israel are now being worked out in us, the church. If you are a Christian, you belong. You're chosen. You are called. You're now part of a royal priesthood. And we are to display that together. What does that look like then? What does it mean for us to be a priesthood? phrase that uh, has often been used in our kind of churches to try and understand this is to talk about the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. This is absolutely fundamental to our understanding of what church life should look like. That every member of the church is called as a priest. We're priesthoods together. Sometimes people say to me, or meet people for the first time, the question comes up, what do you do? And uh, it's always an interesting conversation when somebody asks me that, because so few people have any reference point for understanding what it, what it is I do, because most people haven't met somebody like me, because most people aren't at all church in our context anymore. And, and yeah, so there's kind of different responses I give to try and help people understand. But actually, the answer I could give, and each of you could give if you're a member of the body of Christ, is, what do you do? I'm a priest. What do you do? I'm a priest. Peggy, what do you do? You're a priest. Richard, what do you do? You're a priest. Monty, what do you do? You're a priest. Who are you? What do you do? You're a priest called to serve, to know, to glorify God. Now this, firstly, confers to us incredible dignity. The priests in Israel had a position of special honor and dignity, and they were recognized as being set apart specially for God, and also recognized as having special access to God. Now that is true of all God's people. We are set apart for God, 
with direct access to God. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian for God and to God. And one of the remarkable things about that is that it upends all normal notions of status. That it's no longer like the Navy, where it's very obvious who has the most status by how much gold braid they have on their sleeves. That's not how it should be in the life of the church. Why not? Because all of us are priests. We carry the same status before God. We're called together as his chosen people, his special possession, a royal priesthood. And that just upends normal human notions of status. It means that if you have a low-status job, actually you, in the eyes of the Lord, have as much dignity and honor as the prime minister. That might not be a good... <laughs> Let's try and think. A really high-status position. Somebody else, let's think about. You stay-at-home mum, as much dignity and status as the high-powered businesswoman in the city. Out cleaning the bins, as much status and dignity as one of those rocket scientists in Houston who I met last week. Changes how we should understand ourselves, see ourselves, see one another. There is, there's no such thing as a low-status Christian, because you're a priest got status, you've got dignity, you've got honor. And that means this also signifies incredible equality. This is a revolutionary concept, the priesthood of all believers. It signifies our equality. If you want true equality, that is found in the people of God exercising their priesthood. That each one of us is called to exercise a priestly role. And this is why the Apostle Paul can write famous verses in Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See how the word all appears again and again there. All, all. If you are in Christ, this is your status. This is who you are. You are a child of God. You are a member of his chosen people. You are part of his precious possession. You are part of this royal priesthood. You are a member of the holy nation. And this means that Christianity is radically egalitarian. Should be. There's this incredible quality amongst us. It's not somebody who's got all the admiral's braid and somebody else is below decks scrubbing things out with no status. That's not how it works. That's not how it should work in the church of Jesus Christ. So inequality between us. And then actually really where so much of this comes from and what has been such a crucial thing for Christians to understand is that we have equal access to God's words. Every believer, all believers have Right, to read the Bible, to interpret it and apply the teachings of Scripture. We, we don't any longer need a priest to intercede for us. We don't need a priest to stand between us and God because we are priests, which means that each one of us can come directly to God. It means that all of us this morning who know Christ together, we enter into the presence of God. We don't need a priest here to make it happen for us. Jesus is our great high priest who has opened the way for us. And so together we all come into the presence of God. Freedom of access. Able to read, to hear and apply his words. Now, of course, there are some who are called or gifted to, hopefully called and gifted, to teach and to shepherd God's people. I'm not trying to preach myself out of a job this morning. This is uh, Some of us are called to do this. But 
all of us are equally priestly. I'm no more a priest than the newest Christian in this building. We are called to be priests together. Now, there's, of course, there's different levels of Christian maturity and there are different levels of gifting which the Holy Spirit pours out on us, but there's no difference in status amongst us. The, the church is an all-play zone that all of us can hear and discern and apply God's words together. And that's why when we have our people come and contribute, it's why when we have prayer meetings or worship nights and lots of people participate and share, it's why the, God can speak to us through any member of the church because we're all called to be priests. So we're to live like a priest. Priests had a function which was vertical and horizontal. Priests ministered to God and they ministered to God's people. And we should live that way too. We are called to minister to the Lord. That's what priests do. It's part of what we're doing this morning. We're ministering to the Lord. We seek him. We worship him. We delight in him. If you're a Christian, you're called to be a priest. That means you seek after the Lord. You worship the Lord. You delight in the Lord. To, be, to do that, you, of course, need to be a Christian. You need to be in Christ. And it might be here that you're here this morning, and that's not yet your status. But it can be. You can step into a royal priesthood this morning by turning in faith to Jesus Christ. And if that is your status, that you are part of that royal priesthood, well, you don't need to wait for permission to minister to the Lord. You're already authorized. You don't need to jump through any hoops. You can come into the presence of God, give him glory, delight in him, know the reality of him at work in your life. We're to minister to the Lord. We're also to minister to one another. That's what priests do. We're to serve and to bless one another. That's the role of Priests, just talking to Anne this morning as she was coming up the steps, talking about the people that she's been who can't get here this morning, who she's been phoning and priesting to, caring for other members of the church. That's what we're called to do. I think as we finish, this is our, our last regular service in this in this building as it is. Think of all the priesting that has gone on in this room over the decades. Think of all the prophetic words that have been spoken by Countless people, God speaking through us, through his people, to his people. Think of all the prayers that have been prayed. Think of all the, all the hands that have been laid on and prayers given to different members of the church. Think, you, think of all the coffee dates that have been booked in this room and meals have been planned and all that's happened. There's, this has been a room in which there has been decades and decades of priestly action going on. doesn't look much like the tabernacle, there's not much gold braid, not many ephods and tunics with bells on, but there's been an awful lot of priestly work that has gone on in this room. And also as priests, we're then to minister to the world. We minister to the Lord, we minister to one another, and we minister to the world. And of course, this really is a Christmas message. Peter says that we are to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his Wonderful light. That's the message of Christmas. What are we to do? Gateway Church, what are we to do this Christmas? Well, we're to do what we're to do actually every day. We're to minister to the world. The message the world needs to hear. To declare 
the praises of him who has called us out of darkness, who has brought us out of Egypt, has brought us out of slavery and death, and has brought us into his wonderful light that we might be a holy people, a royal priesthood, his treasured possession. This is who we are. This is good news. We're the priests of God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the great high priest. You're the living stone. You are the gateway, the door through which we have come. Well, thank you. This time of year, we think about the baby in the crib. We think then about the cross, and we bring those two things together and see the reality of what you have done to enable us now to be counted as people of God with direct access to God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, your presence amongst us, filling us, working amongst us. Thank you that together we can hear and discern your working. I pray for us, Lord. I pray as we, as we finish this stage of our journey in this place and as we prepare for the next one, Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, that we would be more and more priestly, that our worship of you would be ever more alive and full of delight and passion and a sense of the presence and glory of God. And our ministering to one another would be increasingly effective and grace-filled and powerful. And Lord, our declaration to the world might be more and more effective to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have made us. Lord, thank you for all that you've done in this place. We anticipate all you're going to do through us in the years to come. And we bless your name, King Jesus. Amen.